the revolution. I've got something important to tell you. Cliffcentral.com. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on Cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. We're doing a part two on what's been a really in-depth focus on the fees must fall, shall we say, movement or protests happening all around the country and really digging into what's the latest update. It's sometimes, you know, even I get lost trying to follow it on Twitter and the news and trying to figure out what's going on. Are people still protesting? Um, you know, has the victory been won? I'm really not sure. And then we'll talk a bit about actually funding the higher education. So there's, there's been demands for, for, for free higher education and, and we understand the need for, for all South Africans, even those from poor black communities to be able to, to have a dignified and high quality education. But at the end of the day, my question is, can we afford it? So as a country, as a developing country in tough economic times, is this something that we can, can afford to discuss? In the short term, or is it something we should be working working towards in the long term? So we'll really be talking about the affordability. How do we structure it? Is it loans? Is it grants? Um, who pays what? And so on. I'm joined in studio by somebody who's usually behind behind the scenes in keeping us, you know, keeping us, uh, what's the word, competent, I should say, Fatima Matiba. Hi, King. Usually doing the social media and actually, you know, making sure that we're actually in studio on time. And now she's in front of the mic. Yeah. Um, Fatima, I know you are completely disinterested in the, in the rugby and were instead <laughs> at the, at the union buildings, um, over the weekend. Um, what was that like? It was really surreal. Um, it was quite unfortunate by the time that most of the VIT students who I was walking with had arrived. Mm. Um, it was already chaos. Uh, so we actually never entered, um, past the gates, uh, and we stayed outside in the park while everything was happening. I mean, I had quite a similar experience of arriving a bit late and the violence and some of the violence had already been taking off. So we'd like to talk to Khadija Patel of the Daily Vox. The Daily Vox has had some of the best coverage, not only on the on what's going on in Joburg, but around the country. Um, Khadija, can you hear us? I can. Okay, fantastic. Khadija, sorry for the mix-up on times, but glad to actually have you on air. Sorry, I didn't catch you there. I said sorry for the mix-up on the timing, but I'm glad that you've been able to make it. No, no worries. No worries. Okay, perfect. I, I, I didn't uh, read your message. <laughs> it's all right. So, Khadija, I suppose my my big question is just, a, I suppose, a pretty dumb one is, what actually happened at the union buildings? Because we had some people rejoicing that the president had said no fee increase. Some people were sort of burning the port loose, and we had sort of these different experiences that I'm struggling just to put together like a coherent picture of what exactly happened on the day. Could you run us through that? I think that it was a mess, really, uh, Kingsley. I think that there was, uh, there was a great deal of miscommunication as well. Um, some students arrived early um, at the union buildings on Friday morning, expecting the president to address them mm. at 10 a.m. Uh, meanwhile, um, what was actually happening was that the president was sitting down to a meeting, a private meeting with various student leaders and uh, university administrators at 10 o'clock. So there was some kind of miscommunication there. Mm. And many students... Uh, you know, read that as being that the president was coming out and addressed them on the lawns at 10 o'clock. And as we know, it was a blisteringly hot day. People uh, then were standing in the sun for hours, um, you know, with no communication. Uh, and the frustration, I think, really got, um, you know, got to, me, to some or, you know, to a certain group of protesters that had assembled on the lawns of the union building. In the meanwhile, we know that students from Johannesburg only, uh, you know, only arrived at the lawn 
um, you know, closer to midday, some of them even afterwards. And by then, um, you know, chaos had already uh, broken loose somewhat, you know, in some parts uh, of, the, uh, you know, of the demonstration outside the union building. Uh, you know, there were fires made, a fence had already been, uh, you know, been torn down. We had, stun grenades had already been fired. Um, so, you know, and um, so there was also, a, you know, um, a, little, a bit of dissatisfaction also from the students who had been there, who had arrived early mm. and, um, you know, who'd expected solidarity and, you know, the, uh, you know, a support from the students from Johannesburg who only arrived much later for various reasons, um, you know, good reasons in them, you know, in themselves. Mm. However, so, you know, these were some of, you know, some of the backstory of what happened. And meanwhile, you know, we've heard the stories um, that lay the blame for, um, you know, for the so-called violence on mm. um students from the Shwana University of Technology. We've also seen correspondence from, uh, you know, students from the Shwana University of Technology that, you know, that really does um, paint this very much as a class war as mm. well. With, you know, these, um, uh, you know, students from Shwana, from TUT, as they, uh, you know, as it's called, say that they, you know, they protest nearly twice a year about, uh, you know, about similar things, about uh, fee increases, and very rarely, do they get an audience with the president or, you know, are they taken this seriously by government? Um, so um, there was uh, some level of disgruntlement also uh, expressed that, um, you know, it's only when the so-called snobs from, you know, the elite universities, um, when they protest, that's when government uh, takes notice. But when, uh, you know, when a, um, you know, a, a university like Shwana University of Technology, which, you know, obviously has, um, you know, is funded far less than, um, you know, uh, than BITS and that has, yeah. does not enjoy the same kind of resources that BITS has, um, you know, that, that they feel that their protests are, are never taken as seriously. So those, you know, since then, those are the kinds of uh, sentiments that have been expressed. Um, oh. uh, and, uh, and oh, yeah, sorry, Khadija, um, I'd like to just to stop you there. I mean, I'm quite interested in this this sort of TUT narrative because on the day um, the, 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 the representation of that really seemed to be these savages, they're ruining the whole thing, it was so peaceful and these guys just messed up the whole thing and then slowly we saw that change and it became quite reflective of saying, think of the plight of, of some of these people who who all of a sudden see a Vitz or UCT start talking about these things and within that nine days, you know, the president is calling an audience at the union buildings and it became very reflective of of can you imagine the the you know their their version of of what's playing out across the country? No, absolutely, and I think that um, you know, it's a failure on all of us not to be um, not to be uh, not reflecting on what is coming out of there, but actually carrying those voices more. I think that um, you know that we have to be speaking to those people as well to try to understand what, you know how they feel about this. If indeed um, you know these. Um, you know, the reflections that we're hearing from it are mm. accurate. You know, um, that's, that's something that we need to do more of. I mean, I hear you, and I think it's put us, I suppose, somewhat in a tight spot. Because I, I mean, this this condemned violence um, has sort of been a, you know, not only for the media, but on it seems to be like it's been the safe place where you can, you can, you can be in line with something and say you support it, but condemn violence, right? That's like the safe place to sit behind. But I think something that's come out of the the, the fees must fall conversation is is how do we approach violence when it's the only way some people can be heard and Fatima you mentioned this earlier so if people come and they feel unheard and they burn the portable toilets as a way of saying listen we are here 
um, then the condemned violence stance sometimes can be, you know, not, not quite a safe hiding place because surely we can understand if that's the only way they can be heard, then surely it's a valid way to express yourself. What do you think about that? Sorry, Khadija, you still here? Yes, sorry, sorry. I thought, uh, sorry. Um, I, I lost it for a couple of minutes. What I, um, I think that, um, you know, when we, what is important for us to actually look at the student protests, um, in the same light as we've looked at, um, you know, the service delivery protests mm. that happen every day across the country. Mm. And often these, um, you know, these protests are often characterized as being violent in the media. Um, and the thing is that, um, you know, these people, you know, and, you know, scholarly analysis has shown that these are people who are struggling to get their voices out, to have their struggles heard, you know, often these struggles with local government, with a councillor or something like that. Um, and the only time that their struggles are really taken, you know, are taken heed of or at least paid attention to is when, you know, when they're burning stuff in the middle of the road and impacting on traffic, uh, you know, on a major you know, on a major road in Johannesburg, for example. Um, so I think that, you know, this, um, you know, the phenomenon of, of people's, um, you know, people, people struggle really not being, um, you know, not being heard until, mm. um, you know, some level of violence, um, you know, is perpetrated mm. is something that, you know, that we have to, we have to think more about. And I think that it does pose to the media because it shows us, you know, all the ways that we are failing. That. Mm. Um, and of course, I mean, uh, you know, if we talk about the Daily Maverick or the Daily Box, they're two well, relatively small organizations. Yeah. Um, you know, the challenge in actually all of us together, you know, mass media in South Africa, what is our collective responsibility to actually be carrying the voices of, you know, people and especially marginalized people? I mean, that's that's great. And I really loved, I loved how this has put that Put that in the spotlight and really put us <laughs> under pressure to sort of, you know, to do our jobs better. I'm sorry, Khadija, I've sidetracked us a bit. Now I wanted to ask, eventually we got word that the president had declared that there'd be no fee increase for the 2016 year. And then there seemed to be some cu- some confusion as to whether this was a victory or not. So we saw people saying, fees have fallen, congratulations, we've done great. And we saw some people sort of being like, this is just the beginning what happens in 2017? We want free education. Where does that come in? So there seemed to be some confusion as to whether this was actually a win for the movement or not. Could you tell us a bit about that? I think that, yeah, um, you know, what it showed was that, you know, while we've seen ad- an admirable show of unity from, yeah. uh, you know, the differing political factions across universities in South Africa, um, what this showed was there was, you know, it, it, it posed a rupture to that unity. It really showed it up for, you know, for, for really just being, you know, a sort of a, you know, an artificial kind of unity because um, it presented, you know, it showed sort of the ideological differences here. So for many, um, you know, for, you know, for the, for example, if you go to WIT and uh, the Progressive Youth Alliance, which is, um, which is aligned with the ANC, right, um, they, they weren't. Uh, you know, taking up this protest as a challenge to the government, mm. right? They weren't. Uh, they, they, they they did not seek to delegitimize de- the government by any by any. That's not what they were trying to do with this protest, right? For them, it was about the failure of you know the upper echelons of their own organization really not taking um, you know taking them taking them seriously, right? But whereas other you know other political groupings saw this quite differently, and they saw this 
you know, as an opportunity and as a movement to actually challenge the legitimacy of the government. And they, you know, they believe that that was what the protest should have continued into. Mm. Um, so these, I think these were the differences really that, you know, that split students after Friday. Yes, we saw many who, you know, were satisfied with the news that the president had announced, uh, you know, a 0% increase from next year. There were others, however, um, you know, who felt disgruntled um, by, you know, by uh, the lack of detail. Um, and they felt that, you know, um, you know, that this was an opportunity then to mobilize for further action, um, particularly regarding the, uh, you know, ending outsourcing on university campuses mm. and also um, moving for, uh, you know, uh, for a concrete plan for free education. Um, so these, then, you know, this is what ultimately I think flipped, um, you know, many of the movements across the country, but particularly at which this was the case. I mean, yeah, I mean, this this just left me thinking whether this sort of idea of trying to categorize, which we had the luxury of doing, uh, one coherent hashtag fees must fall movement across the country. And I feel like after the union buildings march, that's, it's a bit more tricky to do that in that at WITS there's been some splintering about what to do next. And across the universities, sort of some universities declared 0% increase even before the president. Um, and some, as you've seen with TUC, have a completely different plight and story. So it seems a bit difficult to track down and, and sort of categorize this as one one body and one movement. No, absolutely. And what, I mean, while it was, um, you know, while it was very promising at first, and you know, it showed, you know, it did show the potential of, um, you know, of students when they do unite. Uh, you know, it has also showed us, you know, the, the schisms really. Um, that um, you know, prevent us from becoming a greater movement, um, and that um, you know while um, you know while these you know while this, you know while the protest has shown to have a, a definitive outcome in that it is you know it found um, you know, it forced government really uh, to heed the demand of zero percent increase. You know what remains now is uh, that um, you know this. You know again, it did not seek to delegitimize the government by any means. Okay. Um, especially um, you know if you look at the fact that you know many of the campuses are led by ANC aligned organizations. Um, I think and this this is why many of the um, you know many of the analysis that see this as you know as as young people or the born free moving to delegitimize the ANC mm. are completely off. What I think that, you know, one analysis that, you know, that is spot on is that this is, again, about um, a failure for young people or, you know, the difficulties of young people face to actually get their voices heard, to actually have their struggles taken seriously by, you know, the elders, so-called elders. Um, and, you know, I think that it was particularly, um, you know, it, it played out really particularly uh, when uh, outside Lutuli House on Thursday. Mm. When you had, uh, you know, the former SF, uh, SFC um, uh, leader, Dlamini, uh, you, you know, telling Bede uh, Mantashe, hey, ANC, come the people. Um, I think that was, you know, for me, it was, you know, one of the statements, really, of the, uh, of the, of the movement, really. Um, you know that that really was what this was all about. It was really about uh, people in power who have lost the ability to communicate with the people on the street, mm. and this played out 
time and time again during the protest. I mean, I hear you, and there was also some sort of sort of back end allegations, one might say, about the ANC trying to capture the student movement and trying mm-hmm. to plant people here and plant people there. I don't know how much weight do you think we can put on this. Is this just suspicion, or do you think it's entirely possible that the that the ANC and the state might be trying to sort of get the movement to crumble from within? Um, so we um, we wrote a piece uh, that we just published um, a short while ago on mm. the Daily Box mm. um, that uh, I you know looked at particularly this question from the point of view of what happened at BITS because this was particularly an issue at BITS. Um, and the, the reality is really um, it's, it's quite more complex. Mm. However, I think what you know what we cannot deny is that the, op- the ANC will remain an opportunity uh, opportunistic. Um, you know, political party, and uh, while they did ignore the um, you know, the protests at the be- at mm. the beginning, um, by Sunday evening we had President Zuma himself hailing the Progressive Youth Alliance as um, you know as a protest that you know that is uh, aligned with the values of the ANC. Wow. Um, so you know, so the ANC will, will, will not uh, you know will not stop itself from you know taking credit and trying to jump on the bandwagon here. I think that certainly has happened, um, but I think that um, you know, the reality, you know, that there are other very serious accusations were leveled against uh, certain organizations, particularly at but allegations of bribery um, and uh, secret meetings, you know, held between um, the Progressive Youth Alliance at BIT and you know, senior members of AMC and mm. things like that. Um, you know, which again, you know, when you look at, you know, oh, there's not. There's not much to those accusations at all. It really is just, um, you know, uh, isolated accusations with mm. not much proof. However, um, again, this shows that, you know, the, 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 the political differences that really that emerged um, very, um, you know, for want of a better word, violently at this over the, uh, since Friday, um, where you know, the future of the movement, you know, was debated, and mm. while some people were ready to pack it up and say, "Hey, guys, we got what we wanted," um, and we'll, you know, we'll fight more another time. Others, you know, felt that, you know, that the um, that the you know that the fact that students had gathered in numbers large enough to challenge the government meant that you know this was uh, you know the right time to. To challenge government on free education and, and the outsources, it really, you know, it means challenging the system, you know, in which uh, uh, higher education uh, facilities exist in South Africa. Um, so uh, that, I mean, so that really is what happened, and I think that um, I think that you know, the um, the allegations that, with, like I said, you know, don't hold much water, but the fact that the uh, I think that it's quite obvious that the ANC mm. has jumped on the bandwagon. It doesn't take, you know, a sophisticated political scientist to point this out. The ANC, is a, you know, as a movement um, throughout its history, you know, is very, um, you know, is very malleable. That you know, that, that it, it and it will, uh, you know, it will change its course to gain popularity and you know to be to stand on the right side when when need be. And we've seen this again. I mean, yeah, it was really, I was trying to follow sort of what was going on at Vitz last night on Twitter, and there just seemed to be a big back and forth about will it continue, will it not? And then we heard that Vitz SRC has come to an agreement with the, with the institutions and the, and the school can reopen. Um, Khadija, I'd just like to ask about just the overall momentum of the, of the national 
shutdown. Do you think uh, that Vitz, Vitz agreeing, um, or Vitz SRC agreeing to reopen the institution, do you think that's a big loss of momentum for the whole national shutdown? Or does it just feel more like it because there's so much media and Twitter attention on Vitz? Um, I think that it, you know, I think that the timing, um, you know, of this, is crucial. Mm. Um, you know, we've also looked at, uh, every day on the Daily Box yesterday, we looked at the potential implications of a continued shutdown effort. And the fact that, you know, exams, um, you know, are meant to, to begin within the next few days mm. means that, you know, there, there are various implications on that, particularly on the students who live in residences, international students who, whose leases will expire at the end of November and who may effectively be homeless if exams continue through, you know, through December. Um, you know, the infrastructure, you know, the infrastructure neglect that, but things like that. Um, also, I mean, you know, so there, there were various things to, to consider. I mean, I was talking particularly about this, but I think that this is equally true for any other campus across the country that, you know, um, students really do feel that you know, that, um, you know, the, the academic commitments have to be um, sorted out now, that they have to ensure that they pass and then, you know, in the words of one, they can toy toy later. <laughs> I hear you. And Khadija, my final question, we had hashtag end outsourcing as part of this movement. The idea was that it was not just about fees. They also wanted to make sure that the workers' plight was also part of this. And, and, and there was a, a feeling from the protesters that, um, that the sort of, sort of working rights of a lot of the, of the support staff at these institutions, like food and catering and security and so on, were really being compromised due to this system of outsourcing at universities. Is that still something we can expect the, the protesters to push for? Or is it a case of perhaps the workers might have to fend for themselves on this one? No, I don't think the students will, uh, will abandon the work. But, um, I think that, you know, this battle against outsourcing is one that has been, uh, you know, that has been ongoing really at university campuses across the country for years now, and it's a battle that hasn't, you know, that hasn't yielded much results so far. So, however, we've seen recently, um, you know, with this at the end of this this protest, that a university campus, a university management, is really uh, rather committing to um, studying how indeed, uh, you know, outsourcing um, could be ended. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a bit of a wishy-washy commitment that, mm. that, you know, establishing a committee to investigate um, typical South African way. <laughs> um, but, um, but I think um, I, the the plight of the workers will never be forgotten. I mean, from what I know of, you know, of, of, you know, of this particular struggle, um, you know, it's something that has been ongoing for years. And certainly, I mean, this, you know, one week before, you know, the protest began, had a huge focus um, and because that that was the protest movement as an afterthought. But I think that it hasn't been a consistent um, marker of um, you know social justice movements across at universities across Africa and I think that we can expect it to still feature very uh, prominently in protest uh, and student movements going forward. Okay, Khadija, thanks for the detailed roundup. Um, we'll continue to watch sort of the Daily Vox and, and, and keep sort of following the Fees Must Fall movement. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kingsley. Okay, perfect. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We were just talking to the co-founder of the Daily Vox, Khadija Patel, just getting a roundup on where things are after the union buildings march and, and after what's 
we've seen as Vitz SRC agreeing to reopen the university. We're just going to go on to a short break and then continue discussing this issue of further education. How do we make it free? Can the country afford it? We'll be back right after this song. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's just after half past one. You're back on the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We're discussing fees must fall. And next we'll be talking about this whole idea of free education. Is it really something the country can afford? How do we structure it? What would it look like? Please join the conversation on at DM Shows at A. And you can call us on 0861 You know we love to hear from you. Next, we'll be talking to Nick Kluter, Director of the Center for Higher Education and Transformation. Nick, can you hear us? Okay. Perfect. Now, Nick, um, I mean, I spoke to you briefly before and also a bit yesterday, and this is really your sort of your area of expertise, looking at higher education and, and sort of what we can do to give, to give access to more and more deserving students. So we've been talking about sort of free education as a very sort of general thing, but we were lacking nuance about how would it look like, who would fund it, is it actually feasible? So I was hoping that just, you know, reaching into your expertise in the field, you could just give us some details on what we need to be thinking about. You know, I think that the uh, the notion of free higher education is a very uh, complicated notion. Mm. Uh, it's uh, and it uh, and free for the poor uh, is even more complicated. Uh, look, this this whole thing of that this whole debate is going on is really surprising to me mm. uh, because the international evidence is so. It's so clear, actually. And it is that uh, free higher education where people don't pay any fees is currently only still going on in Finland and Norway and Germany. Mm. Uh, there's three or four of the richest countries in the world, and even they are beginning to think of introducing some form of fees. The, the issue is uh, the evidence. The evidence from the OECD and the World Bank is that free higher education benefits the rich. And this may sound very strange. But what happens in a in a what is that Africa has got free higher education. Public the public institutions in Africa are free. And African higher education is a disaster. It produces the least publications, it doesn't produce produce PhDs. The prob, the problem is if in a country that isn't very rich you have free higher education for everybody, the number of uh, access, the number of spaces mm. becomes limited. And who, then, then the competition increases. When the competition increases, who gets it? The rich kids from the good schools, from the private schools, etc. And absolutely. So then what you have in Africa, let me just say, what yeah. you have in Africa is free public higher education and in Brazil and in Argentina and then very poor quality uh, private higher education for the poor who then has to pay fees. Mm. So, so the so the issue is uh, there's evidence all over the world that that free higher education, free for everybody, doesn't work if you not a very rich country or you don't have a very uh, what we call an elite system mm. uh, with a very small number of students. Now, at the same time, the contradiction that we talk about is we want more access, but we also want free. You don't have more access and free. You've got to develop a system where where extra money comes into the system. To allow access for more for more students, I mean, 
we, we virtually had free higher education for the whites uh, uh, when I went to university. We paid 400 rands uh, from a government bursary. Uh, my parents never really paid anything. Mm. But, but this was an elite system for a small group of people. Uh, the moment you want to expand access and get more poor people and other people in, they, then, then the system has to expand. Now, the other contradiction is, currently the South African system is a huge bar- bargain for the rich. These parents who earn a million rand and more, and some of the strugglers that we see whose children are now in the struggle, I mean, uh, uh, they are going to university uh, virtually for free because they're paying one or two percent of their million rand plus incomes Mm. uh, to university fees. Then we actually have not a bad system of access for the poor. Currently, 23% of the students in, in the undergraduate system are on national NSPAS, on, on, on financial aid, which is a very high percentage. Our percentage of poor people in universities is higher than in the U.S., for instance. But the issue is uh, that they've attached this loan scheme to it. And there's huge evidence around the world that you can't, you can't have a loan scheme for the poor because the poor often also struggle to get a job when they leave university. Mm. So then they can't pay back. And you know what happens in South Africa? is the poor students, 50% of the students in the NSPAS drop out. They leave. Then, when a debt collector goes to them and wants to get the money back, they say, well, but I don't have a job. So, put me in prison. So, what can we do? You can't, you can't arrest them. They can't pay their money back. So, that, that component needs to be turned into, uh, into uh, you know, a grant. Mm. So, they, they, I don't think students... Currently, it's 120,000. I don't think students whose parents earn under 120,000 should actually have a loan. They should, they should, they should simply have a, a grant. The real crisis, so the, for the rich, uh, South African higher education is a big bargain. And for the really poor who does well, you've got government financial aid. The crisis lies in the middle class. The parents who earn 150,000 rand, mm. they must now, they don't qualify for National Student Financial Aid Scheme, and they don't, they don't qualify for a bank loan. And in any case, parents who earn, uh, you know, it's almost if you go to mining, it's, it's the, the miners, if, if you get 10,000 rand, it is 120,000 rand, then you qualify, then you qualify for NSPAS. But if you get 12,000 rand, 144,000 rand a year, then you don't qualify. Then you must, now if you're earning 150,000 rand, and you, the cost for student undergraduate is now at around about sixty to 70,000, uh, you know, fees and some living costs. If you were to pay 70,000 rand out of 150,000 rand for, for a student at university, mm. it's impossible. You know, I say that in China, they say you must, uh, you, they've got a law that you only have to have one child. In South Africa, you can have as many children as you want. But in the current regime, you can only send one of them to university, and you're still going to struggle with that one. So our crisis lies in what are we going to, and then traditionally, all over the world, the people who go to university and do well at university is this middle class. It's the, it's the teacher's children, it's the nurse's children, it's the police person's children, it's those, those people who are ambitious. At, I mean, all over the world, the poor doesn't do that well at university, nor in South Africa. They come from poor schools, they come from poor households. So in terms of investment, they're actually quite a high investment risk. But morally, of course, we have to have a, a band of poor people that we say these people we can support. 
So our real problem is how, and the majority of the students are actually in this group of 150,000 to about 500,000. Over 500,000, I think parents can sort of with bank loans and, and so. And I think a lot of the students who are really marching and who are doing this are, are actually, and the, and the people the radios have interviewed and you've seen on these single mothers who's a nurse or is a teacher or whatever. And these are the hardworking people who want their children to succeed. And their children are ambitious. And the fact that we're not supporting them is a crime. I mean, I mean that is a totally unacceptable. Now, I'm, can I tell you how we, how we can address it? I mean, that's the big question, right? So you're laying out, you know. <laughs> I mean, you were preaching there for a second, so i just let you go. So I hear you, you know, about this sort of middle-class you know, trap ways. for people who don't quite qualify, ways. and I hear you and all these things. So the big question is, you know, what do we do now? And what's yeah. feasible for a country of our two, demographics and our finances? Neither of, them, neither of them will be like. The first thing is, and this is a smaller thing, is the universities must become more efficient. The universities are very inefficient. What do you mean by that? Well, firstly, you know, a guy did a study a few years ago, 50 the classrooms are only used like 50% of the year, actually only 40% of the year. Classrooms stand over over weekends. They, they stand open for two months, holidays, uh, uh, which could, they could have been used for educational purpose. The other thing is higher education South Africa, the principals commissioned a study about the salaries of, of academics. Hmm. Uh, in order, they wanted to make a case to government that academics must get more money. What did the study find? The study found that academics get very well paid. Actually, the top end of academics gets too well paid. They actually shelved the report. They never uh, made the report public. So the universities has got a level of top people, particularly above the professors. Mm. You know, a few years ago, we looked at one university. They had two people who earned more than the professor, the vice chancellor and the chief financial officer. Ten years later, they had 35 people who were earning more than the top professor. So there's a, there's a, a trimming to be done there. But the other thing is government. You know, government uh, government has got a commitment to spend at least one, if not 1.5% of the GDP on science. And in 2005, six they reached comma uh, nine. They were almost on one. Mm. They're now down to comma six. And in terms of GDP, uh, we are spending. We, we also reached almost comma nine. Now we're down to comma six seven. There's actually a decline in spending in terms of the budget, in both science and in higher education from around 2005-06. I don't know if we spend the money on the World Cup stadiums or what. But the point is, the point is, government is spending less money on, on higher education than science. Uh, in terms of, just in terms of the budget. In terms of actual money, it's, they're spending a bit more. But, so there will have to be a repositioning. No, and this is where a country has with a national development plan, etc. They've got to take a decision. Korea spends 4% of their GDP on science. Mm-hmm. Cuba spends 4% on, on higher education, which is why they're training doctors for us. If, if the government doesn't uh, increase the... Now they say, I've got to take money from somewhere. It's not the issue of taking money from somewhere. You've got to actually say, where are your priorities? Is higher education and science a priority for this country and for the future of the country, or isn't it? I hear you. Uh, we're talking to Director of the Center for Higher Education and Transformation, Dr. Nico Klote. Thank you. I mean, that's unfortunately all the time we have, but thanks for laying that out for us. Great. Okay. We perfect. will see. <laughs> perfect. <Thank laughs> you. Okay.
I mean, you hear it. Uh, we're talking about um, how to make universities more efficient, how to how to make education more of a priority for the country. I mean, spending you know zero point five percent on education it seems just isn't good enough when comparable countries are spending at least one percent. Now we're going to switch quickly and talk about outsourcing. We'll be talking to Sis Deliwe, who's at Vits, and he'll be running us through what's going on on the outsourcing front. Uh, can you hear us? Hello. Okay, perfect. Thank you for holding. I know you were on there for a while. Thank you. Okay. Okay, perfect. Now, I really just wanted to talk about outsourcing. Um, during the Fees Must Fall sort of kickoff uh, about two weeks ago, it was sort of designed as a two-pronged attack. We're talking about falling of fees and we're also talking about outsourcing. Um, but the, the, all the conversations seem to only be on fees. So I wanted to shift this and talk a bit about outsourcing. Could you just run us through sort of in your perspective um, what the outsourcing system looked like and, and what's wrong with it? Why do we want to do away with it? Okay, outsourcing here at VED means that all the workers who were previously employed by the university mm. were retrained in 2001, and the university brought the companies, the contract companies, like your cleaning company, your gardening, etc., etc. Now, those companies then employed the, the, the workers who were retrained by the university at uh, lower salaries. The salaries were cut up to half, because they were earning around 2.2 at the time. It was in 2001. Mm. And they earned 1,000 rand with the new contract. And they lost all the benefits. Like the most benefit that uh, the state staff has is the free education of your children if they qualify to um, enter bed. So we lost that, uh, that benefit. We lost the medical aid. We lost the pension fund. We lost uh, access to libraries and computers, mm. uh, a whole lot of benefits that we lost. Mm. So now we're taking a stand to say outsourcing must go. Enough is enough because we feel like we've been treated like outsiders. We don't mm. belong at the university. Do you, you get my No, point? I mean, I hear you. I mean, it's, it's odd because when, I, you know, when you generally think of sort of in a very theoretical business, it would make sense for the university to focus on what it does best, education. And for gardening to be handled by gardening experts and security be handled by security experts. But what we're hearing here is, seems to be like a loss of all, of all benefits. So uh, why, why do you think those, these organizations that are now hiring these outsourced staff, why are they able to get away with this? Is it, is it not an issue of making sure that they comply with what the state demands in terms of, you know, COIDA and, and all, and all those other sort of benefits that, that workers around the country should, you know, should, should qualify for? Well, compared to here at VET, when mm. the staff were employed by VET and now, there is no difference really the, 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 in the services. Mm. It's still the same. You can't say that before when uh, the staff were employed by VET, mm. the university was dirty and now it's more cleaner. It's still the same thing. Okay. So we don't understand what is the point of this mm. outsourcing, mm. uh, except for enriching somebody else's pocket. Because we know that the university is paying a lot of money, mm. but Instead, the contractors are pocketing the money and they're giving us peanuts. So that's why we are so against this outsourcing. I mean, I hear you, but it seems the focus is on the university to stop outsourcing rather than the contractors to sort of up their game. Is there any pressure on the contractors? The contractors? Yes. Uh, we can't really uh, say much about the contractors mm. because they were introduced to us by the university. Okay. First employed by the university. Mm. So for the contractors, of course, for them, it's business, it's profit. 
But for the university, I mean, it's really unfair for you to wake up every day working for the university, mm. but you can't uh, uh, enjoy the benefits of the university. You know, uh, it's even it's it's much better now. Before 2013, we as the outsource workers, we couldn't even enjoy the the lawn and the shade on the trees. We we're not allowed to sit anywhere else with the students. Mm. They would say they would make an excuse that the students are complaining. Oh. So we were allocated a small and unventilated changing room where we we used to sit. And we couldn't be free in campus. We couldn't use all the other gates. We were subjected to only use one gate, and we couldn't use any other toilet. So you, you, you hear what I'm saying. So those were the things that we were not used to. And all of a sudden, when this outsourcing came, mm. we were treated like apartheid uh, rules. You get my point. So it's, we don't have anything against contractors, but mm. we want vets because we work for vets. Mm. We have the access at the face vets. So why should we not enjoy the benefits that the other vet staff are enjoying? Um, hi, Sister Liwe. You're speaking to Fatima. Uh, my question for you is that uh, I've only really heard about this issue through the Roads Must Fall movement and recently with vets. And I would like to know whether the workers have been trying to get their voices heard before this movement. And do they feel like this movement has made an, um, a difference? And how it is, yeah, it has definitely made a huge difference because we have been voicing out our opinions. But every time the VC would tell us the university can't afford the university, mm. this and that, and now with joining with the students, at least as I'm speaking to you, we've achieved one uh, of the most important benefits, which is the university will now uh, uh, look into our kids, uh, provided that they qualify to mm. enter vet. They will find uh, they will find uh, funding for them to be advanced. So we've moved uh, a long way in this issue of outsourcing through this movement. I mean, I hear you. I think something I've been trying to sort of ascertain as I follow fees must fall, especially at Vits, and whether is it over, is it not? Is a feeling that a lot of students want to go back to exams and sort of call a protest off for now. Uh, after the president's declaration of no increase in 2016. And I'm, I'm interested in the workers' view on this. Is there a feeling that it's time for the workers to go forward and push for an end to outsourcing, or is the expectation that the students should still be front and center of that particular sort of demand? We, as workers, we feel that we should definitely support the, 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 the children mm-hmm. uh, because they are saying their fight and their hashtags were... In the beginning, uh, uh, hashtag fees must fall mm-hmm. and hashtag end outsourcing. Absolutely. And none of those have been met. Yeah. So the struggle can't carry on. And of course, there are those that would say they want to write their exams, mm. etc., etc. But we are in support of the students and because they're fighting our fight, our battle, and they're getting somewhere with it. I mean, I hear so you. Yeah, I suppose my question is, should the students decide to go back to to exams and let the university open, which it sounds set to open tomorrow, would you would you feel a sense of abandonment from the student movement? Do we feel abandoned? Yes, should they sort of continue with exams and, and sort of, you know, go back, allow the university to function and end the shutdown? Um, we, we won't say we feel abandoned as such. Uh, but we, we we sort of let the students to take the lead. Okay. Yeah, so if they decide that 
the shutdown carries on, mm. we support them. But of course, if they decide that they want to write the exam, mm. then we as the workers, we are, our voices are unheard anyway, so there's nothing that we can do. I hear you, Sister Leroy. Thank you for taking the time to explain sort of the outsourcing um, issue and give us some some details and nuance on that. Um, you know, we appreciate you taking the time and we completely sort of respect and understand your demands um, to have a okay. dignified employer and, and sort of have the benefits that you feel that should be afforded okay. to you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I mean, quite a tragic end to that interview for Tima. I mean, it's a the really last thing, sad story. I mean, the last thing she says was, you know, we support them if they want to continue their exams and if if they continue where workers, our voices aren't heard anyway. Yeah. I mean, not much more to add there. Thank you so much for tuning into this show and we'll continue to watch the Fees Must Fall movement around the country and of course the end to outsourcing. And I especially would love to dig into the numbers and see what actually can we afford. And, and you know, it's, 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 it's difficult to be sitting and just end outsourcing or, or, you know, free, free fees for all. But how many students actually can we afford to put through an education in 2016, 2017 and beyond? And, and and when can we actually put an end to outsourcing? Do we actually need to end outsourcing or do we need pressure on these contractors to to up their game and do more for the for the people they employ? Um so I'm looking to having sort of more detailed conversations and we'll see you next week, same time, same place. We've lost Greg Nicholson, so if you know where he is, please let us know and hopefully he'll be with us next week. Please download the podcast, share it far and wide. We'll see you next week, one to two PM, Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.